Whether it be hidden messages transmitted around the world from the hundreds of operating number stations, or the bizarre illustrations on the sheepskin pages of a medieval manuscript, unsolved ciphers and codes have been a compelling source of mystery for centuries. In the annals of true crime, cold cases like the Zodiac Killer and the Summerton Man have inspired people from around the world to come together and take up the challenge of solving their peculiar riddles. From national intelligence agencies to armchair enthusiasts, breakthroughs have been made by individuals from across the spectrum of experience. One similar case has largely managed to escape the limelight, however, that of a late 19th century man whose true identity was never known. Hanged for murdering his wife, he left the world a series of unsold ciphers that promised to unmask the whole mysterious affair. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 17. I'm Ben, as always. One quick little message before we get started. Last episode, at the end, I half talked about uh, opening up um, entries for the Christmas campfire episode this Christmas. To be honest, it kind of hit me on a bit of a whim and I thought, oh, you know, going by the date, I should probably start talking about it. So now I should probably be a little bit more official about it and sort of mention, yes, if you would like to get your entry in for this year's Christmas campfire, then you want to start doing so now i'll start collecting them up uh you can do so um probably the, the easiest way is to email me uh contact at darkhistories.com uh, and uh yeah I, i'll try and get everyone included basically everyone that uh sends their story into me uh from between now and i guess the closing date we'll call it the 20th of december so you've still got a while you know you've still got a little while but it's only going to be like four or five more episodes i think um until then so yeah, I figure I might as well start sort of uh, mentioning it now, just so to give you plenty of time to uh, get your story in. But yes, if you would like to be included, then please do so. Say I've had a couple of stories so far. Which, as always, I'm, I'm always very excited about this episode. So yeah, um, if you'd like to get your story in, as I say, please do so. That said, little else to say, so let's get cracking. This episode is called The DeBosny Ciphers. Throughout history... Those intrigued by the fringes of society have been sucked into all manner of strange and bizarre stories that have kept their conclusions trapped behind a wall of indecipherable text. From ancient scripts detailing unimaginable lost treasures to the Cold War number stations that beep and chime on the radio waves, bouncing their hidden messages across the Earth's surface. Mystery messages concealed in codes have intrigued us all for centuries. The Voynich Manuscript is one medieval example an ornately illustrated book of unknown authorship consisting of over 200 vellum pages of calfskin decorated with botanical, astronomical and biological drawings and thousands of lines of handwritten script which has, until today, remained untranslated. Purchased by Wilfred Voynich in 1912 from the Society of Jesus, the book had cropped up several times throughout history, only to disappear for centuries at a time. Petrus Beck's a Belgian Jesuit priest and one-time head of the Society of Jesus had come to possess the bizarre manuscript during the Italian War of Independence in the latter half of the 19th century, where members of the society absorbed many books into their private libraries in order to protect them from the clutches of the king's armies, who were systematically dismantling the properties of the Catholic Church. Prior to his ownership, the book had been written about in several documents, the earliest of which was written in the 17th century and attributed its ownership to an alchemist from Prague. When its pages were carbon dated by the University of Arizona, 
The book was confirmed to have dated from the 14th century, though little more of its origin story has since been unearthed. Thought to have originated from somewhere in Europe and to have been originally designed as some kind of medieval pharmacopoeia, its true meaning has remained a mystery, not helped by the fact that the book is a puzzle in itself, with many of the book's pages folding out in elaborate ways. Almost all of the illustrations have such a strong stylistic form that even the illustrations of known plants are difficult to confirm with any confidence. At the heart of the mystery lies within the book's strange script, the vast majority of which is written in an unidentified language. After much expert study, including by a group of cryptographic experts at the NSA, the conclusion of what it actually is is still far from solid and theories still compete as to whether or not it's an unidentified European language that has been filtered through some kind of cipher or a little-known natural language or a dialect now completely forgotten. Likewise, the book's authorship is completely up in the air, with people spuriously attributing it to a disparate bunch of figures throughout the years, including Roger Bacon, a group of Dominican nuns, and of course, Leonardo da Vinci. Even Voynich himself has been strongly suggested as the author, with the whole thing labelled as an elaborate hoax. However, the radiocarbon dating seems to put this theory firmly to bed. In truth, little more outside of its date of origin has been uncovered since its resurfacing over a hundred years ago, and it remains entirely shrouded in mystery. The previously covered story of the Somerton Man includes another popular cryptographic mystery, when a small piece of paper ripped from the back page of a book was discovered in the small fob pocket of an unidentified body found on an Australian beach in 1949. Already a case full of mystery, the discovery of the book in the back of a parked car from which the paper was torn from only deepened the intrigue when five lines of text were found scribbled on the back page that were thought to have been some kind of code. Despite a Herculean effort to both identify the dead man and decipher the code, the text remains a mystery, and though recent DNA efforts have done much to solve the mystery of the man's identity, the words in the back of the book offer us no clues as to who he was exactly and what he was doing on the beach that day. In more recent history, the unidentified Zodiac Killer is the known author of four ciphers, two of which remain unsolved. In the final years of the 1960s, the self-titled Zodiac was an American serial killer operating in California who killed at least five victims. Throughout his spree of terror, he littered the media and local police headquarters with dozens of letters in order to taunt the investigators and spur on the hype around his killings. Never identified or caught, the case left a considerable amount of mystery in its wake, not least the exact point as to when the murders actually started or stopped, with debate continuing until today as to who constituted the canon victims. Perhaps the biggest draw to the case, however, has been the existence of the four ciphers that he sent to various newspapers, insisting they be printed or else he would go on a killing rampage. A strange series of characters and pictograms laid out in block rows, the ciphers drew experts and amateurs alike to the case. The longest of these coded letters was sold within a week of their publishing in 1969 by a schoolteacher and his wife, whilst the second longest remained unsolved for a further 51 years before it was finally cracked in 2020. The final two ciphers, one which is only 13 characters long and suggests that it's the killer's name, remains unsolved. In fact, murderers contacting the media with vague messages to scare the public and taunt the investigators, as well as with coded ciphers, teasing information are not really that unique. The Jack the Ripper case has a series of infamous letters connected with the killer, though how many are the real thing and not a hoax is uncertain. Such communications tease us with their audacity 
and compel us to seek out the answers, propelling the story for decades with the promise that the answers to all of our questions are right there in front of us, hidden in plain sight. Eighty years before the Zodiac Killer, there was another man who found himself with too much time on his hands and an enthusiasm for violence and secret codes. Unlike the Zodiac ciphers, however, this man's messages remain unsolved, largely untouched and almost completely forgotten. Situated within the limits of the Forest Preserve of the Adirondack Park and perched on the banks of Lake Champlain, Essex County, in the northeastern corner of New York State, has always had a close relationship with the lake, the lifeline on which trade goods were transported in and out of the state. Its economy was driven by shipbuilding and farming, with huge shipments of grain, apples and livestock being loaded onto boats that sailed up the Champlain Canal, completed in 1820, providing a massive boon for the local towns. Elizabeth Betsy Reed was, like many Americans in the 19th century, the daughter of Irish parents. Almost four and a half million Irish immigrants had crossed the Atlantic during the century in order to flee poverty and famine at home, searching for a better life. Betsy had joined their ranks after her mother had died and she sailed to New York with her widowed father, Thomas Reed, settling on a 15-acre plot of farmland in a small town in the shadow of Split Rock Mountain, an iron-rich mountainside that housed a productive quarry on the banks of Lake Champlain. In 1863, she married a local mining engineer, John Wells, who worked at the ore bed, and the couple had four children, all girls, named Rebecca Jane, Mary Ellen, Eliza and Phoebe. Sadly, John would not live to see Phoebe born, and Betsy found herself widowed in the winter of 1870, after an accident at the mine saw over 800 pounds of rock and ore crash down on top of her 33-year-old engineer husband. Betsy was paid off by the quarry with a sum of $300 for her husband's death, which she squirrelled away at the farmhouse, concealing it in a secret compartment beneath a windowsill in the main living room. It was 12 years later that she employed a Parisian by the name of Henry de Bosny as a farm labourer. Standing at 5 foot 6 inches tall, sporting thick black hair and a moustache, de Bosny was a charming man. Intelligent, he spoke six languages and he had a flair for a story. His handsome Mediterranean features were marred only by a somewhat enigmatic, two-inch scar that cut through the left side of his face. It was, he told people, the mark of a sabre wound that he had taken in 1862 during the Franco-Mexican War. Within five weeks of his arrival in Essex County, he managed to sweep Betsy off of her feet and the couple were married quietly in June of 1882 in a private ceremony, so quiet that Betsy didn't even inform her family of her intention to remarry and for the most part, her siblings only met Henry for the first time when she introduced him to them as her new husband. Reasonably quickly after the marriage, however, Betsy started to wonder who it was exactly that she had married. Henry began pressuring her to sign the deeds of the farm over to him, as well as squeeze information out of her concerning the settlement money that he knew that she had tucked away somewhere. Henry may have been able to spin an alluring story, and his exotic manner may have seemed exciting to many, but his past had been full of mystery and dark turns a truth that he'd worked very hard to conceal from his new Essex County family. The life of Henry de Bosny is one of hazy truth, mired in swashbuckling adventure and glittering fortune, but exactly how much of it is based in any truth is another story altogether. Born in Portugal, in the small town of Belém, outside Lisbon, on May 16th, 1836, he was the son of very well-to-do parents. His father was Portuguese and his mother French. Shortly after his birth, 
the family moved to a large, castle-like home on a vast French estate, surrounded by mountains and complete with its own bowling green. Educated for a career in the Catholic priesthood, he attended religious school and college, punctuated for two years when he began his career as an adventurer at the ripe age of 12 by tagging along with an expedition to the North Pole in 1848. Upon his return, he attended college in Paris until 1854 when he took up his first stint in the military, volunteering to fight in the Crimean War. Two years later, he found himself back in France and completed his education before taking off around the world, volunteering to fight in the Italian War, sailing to China and eventually winding up in America, where he fought in the Civil War before returning to France in 1864 and marrying a young lady named Miss Judith Desmarais. Shortly after the marriage, he took off on another Arctic expedition, before the pair moved to New York in 1868, shipping their two-year-old daughter and newborn son to England, where they lived with Judith's sister on a family estate. What had been an action-packed life was not about to retreat into a slumber any time soon, and less than a month after their move to America, tragedy struck the couple when Judith allegedly drowned in a river. As her husband, Henry was high on the list of suspects, but he was never arrested, and he eventually left town, heading back to France, where he volunteered with 600 other men from America to fight as a colonel in the Franco-Prussian War and wound up getting embroiled in the French Revolution, where he conspired against the commune that had taken control of the country, eventually getting arrested and only escaping the firing squad due to the graces of his connections in high places. Lying low in Brussels for a month, he hopped on a boat and headed back to America for a life of freedom far away from his record as a revolutionary. Further tragedy befell Henry when his $9,000 property in New York burnt down in 1871, leaving him with nothing. But some happiness came a year later, after he remarried in 1872 to a Canadian woman named Celestine. The couple spent the next decade moving around North America, whilst Henry worked sporadically as an ornamental painter and a trapper in Philadelphia, New York, Delaware, Nebraska, Pennsylvania and Vermont. Living this nomadic lifestyle was fairly harsh, and they were close to destitution for large periods, often surviving through months of unemployment by finding financial support from local French societies. However hard the decade had been for Henry, it was infinitely more so on Celestine, who allegedly died of starvation in 1881. Finding himself freshly widowed for a second time, Henry skipped town with a cook known as French Liz, or Prue, aboard a yacht and headed north though the couple parted ways shortly after when Prue took off to her family home. Alone and looking for work, Henry's long, winding path had finally led him to Betsy's farm, where he found his feet and eyed up his third wife. Seven weeks after their quiet marriage, on July 31st, 1882, Henry let Betsy know that he had arranged an outing for them to the nearby town of Port Henry, ten miles south along the bank of Lake Champlain. His father had arrived from France, he told her, and they were going to head down to meet him to collect some furniture and a horse that he had bought them as a gift and to help him settle into his new property. Betsy, realising that help him settle in had meant that she would be spending the week cleaning, she was not overly keen to go, but eventually she gave in and reluctantly clambered aboard their horse and cart and set off towards Port Henry. When they reached the town that Monday evening, they checked into the Sprague Hotel and Henry parked the horse in the nearby stable for the night. The following day, they bought supplies for a picnic and took off into the surrounding woodland. Alan Talbot was a farmhand on Blim Farm, just south of Split Rock Mountain. 
that Tuesday morning, he had taken off to work in a hurry and forgot some of his tools, so by early morning he found himself begrudgingly making the track back home on horseback in order to pick them up. The road was quiet and the going was easy, but when he approached a densely wooded copse just to the right of the trail, his horse seemed to give a short start. Looking in the same direction, Talbot thought he saw Henry de Bosney skulking about in the bushes. Putting a strange situation out of his mind, whatever de Bosney was doing wasn't his business, he reasoned. He carried on up the road towards his home, passing by Henry's horse and cart, left empty by the roadside. The return journey was far less curious, and Talbot made it all the way back to the Blinn farm without seeing anyone on the road, at least until he approached the farm itself, and he saw Henry driving his cart in the opposite direction. Now things were starting to feel a little bit odd. Firstly, for Henry to be riding this way, he should have passed Talbot on the road on his way back to the farm. And what's more, Henry seemed to have changed his shirt since Talbot had last seen him, shuffling around in the brush. Deciding the situation suspicious enough, Talbot manoeuvred his own horse into a nearby barn where he could observe Henry as he rode past. He confirmed that he'd definitely changed clothes. He had been wearing a plain white shirt, but now it was a patterned check shirt. The whole thing just sat awkwardly in his mind as he arrived back on Blinn's farm and he decided to approach Blinn himself and tell him what he'd seen. Blinn agreed that something seemed off and they both decided to head back to the patch of woodland where Talbot had spied Henry on his way out to see if they could spot anything that might clue them into what he had been up to. Following the cart tracks back along the small side road, their suspicions were rewarded almost immediately when they discovered what looked like small splatters of blood leading off in a trail towards the brush. Following it, they found a scene of what looked like a potential struggle. Food had been scattered across the ground, and a flattened trail led them further from the roadside. Following this trail for a further 70 feet, they moved further and further from the roadside until they reached a small, secluded clearing, surrounded by brush, and there, in the middle, lay the body of Betsy de Bosney, loosely covered in leaves and branches from the nearby trees. Panicked, they took off at full pace, and instinctively headed towards the nearby town of Wallensburg, where they were able to make use of a public telegraph and contact the authorities, alerting them to their find. Henry, they said, had just killed his wife out by Blinn's farm. Wesley Hoskins, the telegraph operator at Wallensburg, received the alarming message with wide eyes. The content would have been enough to shock any sleepy postmaster on a Tuesday lunchtime, but what's more, Henry de Bosney was standing opposite him, on the other side of the divide in the post office. He had come in shortly before to arrange for Betsy's mail to be forwarded to Port Henry, where she was to be staying with his father, he had told him, and he was hanging around to get confirmation from Wesley when the telegraph had come through. Quietly, Wesley gestured to George Tucker, the post assistant, and slipped him the printed note, whispering for him to take it over to the deputy constable, Bill Mulvey, as quickly as he could. Hoskins then engaged Henry in small talk in order to hold him up whilst he waited for the constable to arrive. All the while, he hoped that the sweat upon his brow wouldn't give away his underlying nerves. Before long, Tucker returned with Mulvey in tow, who arrested Henry on the spot for the murder of his wife, Betsy. Handcuffed and frisked with the aid of the locals who had been watching on, Henry made no attempt to struggle or run, resigning himself to the situation with little more than a heavy despondency as he headed to the Elizabethtown jail. If the police had had any concerns about arresting Henry based solely off a random telegraph, they would have been largely abated once they stepped outside and begun even a cursory investigation. In the time it took Talbot and Blinns to get to Wallensburg, 
Henry had driven back to Betsy's farmhouse and ransacked the place, looking for her settlement money. Failing to find it, he toured the town for a while in search of one of Betsy's children in order to try and get the information out of one of them and then casually rode to the post office to forward Betsy's mail. In the car, the police found three pistols, one of which had been fired twice with ammunition that matched the 22 caliber wounds found on Betsy's body. They also found a wad of cash, a blood-stained knife, two of Betsy's rings that were also stained with blood, along with her purse. It all looked pretty damning for Henry, who, despite protesting that Betsy had simply removed her rings at an earlier time due to her hand swelling, the bloodstains were not really doing him any favours. Back in the brush, a group of four locals watched over Betsy's body until Dr Atkins showed up to make his initial examinations. Laying on the ground and covered in loose bits of vegetation in a poor attempt to cover her up, the doctor brushed it all aside and noted that she had been shot twice, once in the face below her left cheek and once in the top of her head. The shots had been violent, but they were nothing to the gash in her throat that spanned her entire neck and cut down to the bone. Betsy's body was removed for burial and an inquest was set up for the following day where a conclusion of homicide was confirmed. For de Bosny's part, he told the police that he had nothing to do with his wife's murder and instead he placed a suspicion on a mystery homeless Scotsman named William Brown that had been staying in the Bosney barn for the previous three weeks after he had knocked on the door begging for food and a place to stay. Over three weeks ago, a Scotchman, about 60 years old, with long grey whiskers, came to my house and wanted something to eat. I gave it to him. He asked me if he could sleep in my barn. I allowed him to do so. He slept there three weeks and I introduced him to my wife as my father. He got his meals at our house. I wanted my wife to go with me and hire a farm of 34 acres near Mineville and leave the Essex farm for our daughters. Monday, we drove to Port Henry to see the farm and we stayed there overnight. Tuesday we started to drive home, going by the old road, when about six miles from Essex we met the old Scotchman and he asked us if we had bought anything to drink. I answered that we had some whiskey and we got out of the wagon and sat down in the woods. I got drunk and fell asleep. After sleeping some time I was awakened by William Brown, the Scotchman, who asked me if I was not going home. I asked him where my wife was and he said she had gone home long ago. I then started for home and did not know anything was wrong until I was arrested at Essex. I know nothing of the murder. I know he did wrong in introducing Brown to my wife as my father, but I never thought that he intended to kill her. Not only was the story highly improbable, it was completely verifiable as untrue after just a short conversation with Betsy's daughters or any of the locals who all confirmed that they had never seen nor heard of William Brown before. The story had made absolutely no sense and no one seemed to buy it for a moment. However, it was not the only thing that was beginning to look stranger about Henry de Bosney, who found that his story quickly gained interest from the wider public as the true enigma quickly unfolded. Early press reports had had difficulty keeping their stories straight. Betsy was confused on multiple occasions with Prue, the cook, who had been falsely reported as missing, and in other stories, Henry had been arrested for two murders rather than one. To top it all off, it soon became clear that Henry de Bosney was not Henry de Bosney at all. Straight after his arrest, Henry told the police that he had changed his name years ago during his fighting in the Franco-Prussian War in order to protect his family from his actions, and now that he was in real legal trouble, he had absolutely no intentions of giving his real name up to anyone. Two days after his arrest, Henry suffered an epileptic fit in his jail cell and was found mid-seizure by the undersheriff, head bleeding from his thrashing about. 
in order to combat the fits, which after he recalled having occurred semi-regularly for the past 14 years, he was prescribed a concoction of mercury, the Victorian cure-all, that was often prescribed to patients for everything from toothache to syphilis, despite its clear poisonous properties. By the time his pretile hearing rolled around on December 11th, 1882, he was a shadow of himself and suffering from severe mercury poisoning. Described as a poor, weak, sickly, cowardly, demented creature, his complexion was unhealthy and he was generally despondent. He slurred his speech and, perhaps most strangely, began keeping a menagerie of imaginary animals in his prison cell whose various bleats and brays he mimicked with great satisfaction. At his hearing, de Bosny, who was to be defended by the district attorney, A.K. Dudley, after failing to receive funding from the French Consul of New York, pleaded not guilty and had his trial set for March the 6th of the following year before being marched back to prison to pass the time as best he could. For de Bosny, this manifested mainly in one of two ways. He either spent time conversing with one of his many visitors that came from a constant flow of sympathetic women, or he spent his time writing poetry in any one of his six spoken languages and sketching crude landscapes of his European stately homes and portraits of his deceased wives. Amusingly, the papers who referred to Henry as the wife-killer suggested that he drew the images using the blood of deceased flies, which was, of course, completely untrue. For a short period, Henry also spent a little time plotting a prison break, but the plan was fairly simple in its details and was foiled in practice almost immediately when the undersheriff, who he planned to attack when he arrived to let the prisoners out for yard, turned up with a visitor rather than alone, forcing Henry to bench his master plan. On another occasion, it was reported that he attempted to write a letter to a recipient in New York City that contained a secret letter written in a homemade invisible ink that requested help to break him out of the jail cell. The letter went undelivered and the ink exposed the plan when it reformed on the page several days after he had handed it over to the undersheriff. Aside from this, Bosney gave his winding, meandering life story to members of the press who hung on his every word, well aware that the exotic and adventurous descriptions would net them a captive audience. On the flip side, it had the knock-on effect of inviting several other accusations in regard to his previous wives, whose sudden disappearances were being looked upon with renewed suspicion, though no formal charges were ever levied against him. Eventually, Henry's trial kicked off on Tuesday, March 6th, 1883, as planned and spanned two days in court after the first day was called early due to severe snowstorms. The planks of the old Essex County Courthouse floor creaked under the weight of the bustling crowd that showed up to watch and report on the proceedings, which were written up in detail across the country. When Henry entered the courthouse, his condition had grown so bad that he could barely walk alone and he needed to be supported by policemen on either side. After he hobbled to his seat, the proceedings got underway. The defence made no bones to the jury about who killed Betsy. They knew that Henry was on a hiding to nothing, and instead of trying to plead a case of innocence, they instead focused on spinning it as a crime of passion, carried out in a drunken rage, with the hopes of having the murder charge reduced to the second degree, thereby rescuing him from the gallows. It was a ruse that failed relatively spectacularly, however, when witnesses who had seen de Bosnia on the day of the murder all confirmed that it appeared perfectly sober. The jury sided comfortably with the witnesses and returned to the courtroom after just nine minutes of deliberation, finding Henry de Bosny guilty as charged for murder in the first degree. His sentencing was carried out in the days following, and in the words of the judge, he was committed to be hanged by the neck until dead, dead, dead. In the six weeks between Henry's sentencing 
and his trip to the gallows, set for April the 27th, Henry arranged to sell his body to a local doctor for $15, which he used to buy himself a suit for the occasion, as well as a handful of sweets and confections, which he gave to the undersheriff as gifts to his children in thanks for his fair treatment whilst imprisoned. Strangely, quite the opposite of what one might imagine, his health improved rapidly in the days following the trial. Whether it was the relief of a conclusion to the affair, or the fact that his mercury medications were ceased, is unknown, but the papers began describing him as full of renewed physical and mental vigour, and in good health. Ironically, his returning to health did nothing to help him with an appeal to commute his sentence on the grounds of insanity that had been put forward on his behalf from a group of sympathisers from the New York public, which was roundly denied. He also busied himself, writing his fanciful autobiography, whilst he handed out copies of his drawings and poems to several of the women who had visited him, kept him company and bought him food and baked goods. On the morning of his hanging, he protested his innocence one final time to Father Reddington, the priest who visited him in his cell before he made the long walk out to the gallows that had been set up in the prison yard earlier that morning before the sunrise. The sheriff and a deputy entered the cell and pinioned the prisoner, who was then brought into the yard. At ten minutes of twelve o'clock, de Bosnia ascended the steps of the gallows slowly. He did not exhibit any degree of fear, hesitation or emotion. The Reverend Father Reddington, who was with him, said a prayer and then asked the prisoner if he had anything to say. De Bosnia replied, I have. I am innocent of the crime. You have made a mistake. The blood on my knife was the blood of a chipmunk. The black cap was placed on his head and the drop fell at 54 minutes past 11 o'clock. His body hung for 16 minutes in front of the crowd, 2,000 strong that had come to see the execution, before being cut down and shipped off for dissection by the curious doctor who had previously bought his body. Even after death, de Bosny never ceased shocking the public, when the dissection revealed that his entire body was covered in tattoos, though none, aside from a pair of crossed French tricolour flags on his hands, were ever documented, unlike his brain, which was reported as weighing 52 ounces. The doctors buried Henry's remains in an unmarked grave near Lee Park, though he kept the skeleton back, which was wired together and hung in his office for several years. It passed through several hands before eventually being donated to the Westport School District, who abused it fairly well until 1961, where they handed over the skull to the Adirondack History Centre and Museum in Elizabethtown, where it remains displayed until today, next to a segment of the hangman's noose that was used in the execution. Slowly, Henry's life faded away into obscurity. The New York Times wrote a long piece on him using his autobiography and called him a remarkable man and a soldier of fortune. The mystery of who he was and where he had come from ignited curiosity for a time, but by the 1890s he was all but a footnote in the history of Essex County. Then, in 1957, a rather curious discovery was made that hailed a renewed interest in the case. It had been fairly well documented that, whilst in prison, Henry had spent much of his time writing various poems, autobiographies, and sketching small fragments of his history onto loose pages, which he eventually handed out like trinkets to many of the visitors that had kept him company throughout his incarceration. One of the recipients of a collection of 26 pages of Henry's writings had kept the macabre treasure to herself, until her death in 1917, when they were passed on to her granddaughter, Mrs Nellie Turner, who in turn tossed them into storage in her attic, and promptly forgot all about them, until 1957, when she read about Henry de Bosney in a piece written by Robert Hall in the daily New York paper, The Press Republican. Recognising the name immediately, 
and realising that she had a stack of his papers stashed away above her head, she dug them out and donated them to the Adirondack History Centre and Museum where they could be reunited with their author's skull. What they discovered, however, was that aside from the six languages that Henry was known to have spoken, he had written several pages entirely in an unknown pictographic script. A strange mix of Masonic symbols, dots, loops and scratched lines, the pages appear immediately recognisable as a coded language, whilst at the same time completely shrouded in mystery. Small diagrams of the sun and of trees, it is at times graphical and at others nothing more than a collection of scratchy glyphs. Recurring images and numbers appear throughout, an illustration of an isometric cube with sides numbered 5, 1 and 6, hints at deeper meanings, and a small illustration of a handshake is labelled with the initials LMF, which is repeated once again on another page with the initials HDD LMF. Giving that his assumed middle name was Delignac, it's reasonable to guess that these are the initials of his name, but what the LMF could stand for is anyone's guess. Tantalisingly, there is a page clearly signed off with a full name, which could, if translated, completely unwrap the secret of de Bosny's real identity. The likely key to the code lies in a poem written in his cipher and then translated into Greek on the opposite side of the page. This is, of course, if everything is as it appears and de Bosny's word can be trusted, which, unfortunately, is simply not the case. In contemporary times, de Bosny's writings were seen as those of a fairly competent poet and his sketches even appeared to be quite finely illustrated. However, under a modern lens, a new reality forms. In truth, much of de Bosny's writing was in fact plagiarised from other sources, most notably from the Irish writer and poet Thomas More, amongst others. Several of his poems are simply amalgamations of numerous poems, their verses reordered and repurposed into new works, and even the supposed Greek translation is taken wholesale from a book of translations published in 1840. Many of his drawings, too, were clear copies of illustrations that appeared in Peterson's magazine throughout 1879, four years before his imprisonment. So who exactly was Henry de Bosny? If so much of his writings were plagiarised from other sources, how much of his autobiography can we assume to be true? It turns out there were several descriptions, even in that, which have been lifted from various newspaper articles, but there are aspects of the story that did ring true. Was he flowering his writing with snippets he thought might add colour and flair, or was he some kind of savant with a photographic memory, recalling books and newspapers that he had read throughout his life and ripping them off wholesale to create a completely fabricated character? And why, exactly, was he so bent on creating such a character in the first place? Did he really have a family he wished to protect from his misdemeanours, or was he simply an egotistical fantasist with delusions of grandeur? His chosen pseudonym gives us some insight, as it appears to be quite poorly spelt. Rather than being any real name, it's more likely that Delagnac de Bosny was the wrongly estimated phonetic spelling of a French name that he had heard in the past. The strength of his French is therefore questioned quite heavily, but at the same time, does it suggest that the French periods from his autobiography were true? The tattoos on his hands would suggest so, as well as his relationship with the French consul throughout his imprisonment. And who was his family? Was he really of some noble or high birth? And was that what he sought to protect so passionately? In prison, he told the press, it is enough for me to suffer this degradation without leaving the dishonour upon my family. 
He spoke of several estates across Europe and drew pictures of grand castle-like mansions that supposedly belonged to the family. Shortly after his hanging in July 1883, a supposed anonymous French citizen wrote to the New York Sun, a paper that was well known for its frauds, insisting that de Bosny was his comrade, Monsieur Keff, a fantasist with a penchant for poorly written poetry. Whilst there is evidence in the French records that seem to point towards the existence of a Monsieur Pierre Keff who aligns with the details in the Frenchman's letter, there is little to suggest that Keff emigrated to America, nor became the enigmatic Henry de Bosny. Nick Pelling of the cipher website cyphermysteries.com did some research that picked up Pierre Keff as he was headed to prison for a violent assault. Pelling suggests that if Keff really was de Bosny, he may have escaped prison and sailed to America under a series of false names, which might explain the lack of paper trail leading from France to the States, but it does seem something of a stretch. One last mystery is whether or not de Bosny was actually guilty of killing his wife at all in the first place. His story, implausible as it seems on the surface, was in truth a reasonably possible series of events. He was undoubtedly sent to the gallows with little more than a collection of anecdotal evidence behind his trial, and it's also undoubtedly true that his conviction had been decided by the public long before he even set foot in court. The fact that he was seemingly suffering from mercury poisoning and mentally very unwell throughout the trial also raises questions as to how happy he was with his attorney's position to throw him under the bus in the way that he did by suggesting to the jury that he was likely guilty, but perhaps of a crime of passion rather than calculated murder. He did, after all, go to his grave professing his innocence. And we are also left to question what he gained financially from the murder, as all of Betsy's money and property was left to her daughters. Was the tale of the visiting Scotsman true, or another of de Bosny's fantasies? Whilst the latter does seem more likely, there are certainly doubts raised when looking at the evidence. In the end, the tale of Henry de Bosny is a true enigma. The pages of pictographic cipher dangle a tantalising carrot for us to one day discover a more final conclusion to the case, but there is also every chance that the whole thing is little else besides one more fantasy, drawn up in a prison cell by a man who had far too much time on his hands and an overactive imagination. The first steps to uncovering the truth are right there in front of us, hidden in plain sight, buried behind a complicated puzzle just waiting to be solved. So that was the story of the de Bosny ciphers. So we'll discuss a little bit more about that after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So the de Bosny ciphers, they're really interesting. I am shocked that as a story, it's uh, not more well-known because it's got like all the ingredients uh, of a cult true crime story, right? Um, you know, it's it, you got like the, the murder, the enigmatic suspect who was hanged for his crimes and pages of autobiography that he wrote in prison. And then you've got these ciphers on top. You know, it's just, it seems to me like it's it's all there for, for a sort of cult classic true crime story, but 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 it's not really what, not well-known and the ciphers have, have really not had much attempts at being solved which is really exciting in a way uh but not overly helpful because i i don't have the skills or talent to uh to get involved in that sort of thing but maybe you know you do or maybe you know someone who who may be interested 
but they are um you know basically that there is a, a lot of them and 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 so what i understand from sort of solving ciphers is is like like in the case with the zodiac ciphers um like the longer they are the easier they are to solve because you've got more um you can see more patterns that form and and so it becomes easier to solve and you've just and also you've just got a larger a larger pool of examples to pull from but they are like you know quite a few pages of, of cipher and and I say most interestingly, there's one that looks like it, it mirrors a poem that's in Greek. So what this really needs is someone that can speak Greek and is really good at code breaking and ciphers. And then we might be onto something. <laughs> but that's definitely not me. But as a story, it's interesting, isn't it? You have to question, so firstly, I suppose the big, the mystery of who, who he was. We'll deal with that sort of first. Um, you know, he says that he was, he doesn't necessarily say noble birth, but he he says that he was of um from from a very good family that had estates across Europe including in England and France and Portugal and they were big estates he drew pictures of them and and to be honest the pictures to me make me doubt the story because the pictures of the estates are a little over the top they're like almost castle like houses and 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 they're sort of they don't architecturally makes sense and i've not seen much like it in england so that's what makes me doubt his story because that they're, they're, they're like almost like english castles like english medieval castles mixed with stately houses and i just don't recall seeing that sort of architecture in england anywhere so that makes me sort of doubt his story a little but maybe he was just over-egging it a little bit and just drawing these like ridiculous houses uh, from his memory and and he just sort of over-egged it a little because there is elements of his past that match up with historical places and that's what makes me wonder whether or not he was just some kind of savant because lots of his autobiography does exist and you can track it a lot of it you can't um, because it it's just perhaps you could sort of visit registry offices in france like local rural registry offices in france and maybe you could find old records and things but i was not able to find them out uh, but much of it i was able to corroborate um so you end up wondering like like i say like how much of his autobiography is true and and not and because of the way it's like half and half you end up really second guessing yourself the whole time you, every time you find a fact and go no you know like this school did exist or Oh, this person existed. You end up then sort of down a dead end on on another part of his autobiography, which then leads you to think, oh, maybe he's just a liar. But you know, a lot of the names existed that he spoke of, a lot of the history, in fact, all of the history that he mentioned, all of the wars that he said he fought in, and all of the revolutions that he said he fought in, existed and did happen. And it's really tantalising. Like, so perhaps it's true. I mean, he did have. Um, tattoos all over him and that's that's one of the killer things in this is if they had if the doctor had documented the tattoos perhaps we could have had more of a clue as to who he was because a lot of those tattoos would likely have told a, a bit of a story instead we got um all the only tattoos that we were known for him to have say was the the crossing french flags on his hands which don't really tell us much of anything but then there are other elements like the 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 when he was in prison he wrote a letter in um like hidden ink which i'm not sure if that's true or not 
because it was only in one paper that I found. But if he did, where did he get that knowledge? And that leads you to think that he may really have been involved in the military and, and his military story might be true. So that's really interesting. But none of it answers who he was, you know, if he really was this kind of sort of well-to-do person. And if is that really why he was covering it all up? Because he was afraid to um, sort of drag his family into his shame. It's one of those ones where, unfortunately, we're probably not going to know until we sort of uncover some of the ciphers, which he did actually say the truth was in his ciphers. So maybe, you know, that 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 is the key to it. And that could also be the key to whether or not he killed his wife or not. Now, I believe he did kill his wife. I think he was a, a probably a spiteful man. He sounds pretty horrible. You know, it's almost as soon as he married his wife, he, he began sort of trying to pressure her into handing the farm over to him and things like that. I, I do think he killed her. But at the same time, you can say that his story is somewhat plausible. I do think if there was such a man as the Scotchman, he could have framed him very easily. You know, he could have killed his wife and framed him. But then you have to question why. What was the motive? Was was the Scotchman aware that she had £300 in the house or $300 in the house, rather? And was that why he was doing it? Because that's the only motive it really, realistically, he would have had. But, you know, uh, the, the the rest of the story, it, it could have been feasible. I don't, as I say, I don't necessarily believe this, but it's definitely true to say that he was hanged on the grounds of circumstantial evidence that was fairly flimsy and he was judged by uh, a group of people who had definitely decided he was guilty bef- long before he was tried you know he was guilty from the day he was arrested from the second he was arrested and you know from the moment they found his body he was guilty but if you actually examine the evidence it's nothing that like i say he could have been framed he could have got drunk until he passed out the Scotchman could have, you know, drunk with him until he passed out and then killed his wife and then framed him by putting all of the evidence in his car and scarpering, you know, going to the house trying to find the money and then scarpering. The best evidence really against him is the fact that he'd spent a couple of hours in town looking for his daughter in laws that, that afternoon and all of the witnesses said that he wasn't drunk. Unfortunately, all those same witnesses are the people that more or less decided that he was guilty from the minute. So if he was drunk, would they have said anything? And was this a case of maybe like fairly severe prejudice? If he was seen as this kind of like outsider that had come along and married this woman in five weeks, the, you know, and maybe everyone was prejudiced against him, you know, because he was a sort of Frenchman and he was outsider and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really believe what what I'm saying I don't really. I, I do think he killed his wife. That, I, but at the same time, I think that that theory that I've just posited there is plausible. I think you know. I think they were. It was a small rural area, and that certainly could have uh, you know been prejudiced against him, and he could have been framed. Who knows? As like I say, I I don't think that's true. And and you know this does go slightly deeper. Um, you know when he was imprisoned, he was essentially fed mercury for his fits to the point where he was he couldn't stand up like he was not fit to be standing trial at court him pleading not guilty or guilty or whatever none of that really realistically sounds like he 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 was in a fit state to have done anything and then you know when he was hanged on the morning he was hanging 
he still professed his innocence and, and told the reverend that, you know, no, he was innocent. I think actually his excuse leads me to sort of back to his guilt and in, in that he said that, you know, the, the blood of my life on my knife was from a chipmunk. Um, I mean, he had done some trapping in his past, but that just seems really unlikely. And uh, I think he would have been better off saying, you know, the blood of my knife was, you know, just framed or something. Um, I think he would have had a better um, argument if he said he's framed. So, yeah, I, I think ultimately, in a way, like his excuse there sort of signals his guilt for me. Um, and I do think he was guilty, but it's a tantalising kind of conspiracy, isn't it, in a way? Um, you, you know, it's a, I do think it's up in the air. But yeah, that's more or less that story. There's a couple of mysteries sort of there, really. You have the kind of, you know, the the, the question of whether or not he, he he did the murder or not. But the real mystery is in the ciphers. Um, now, obviously, I, I couldn't really do any work towards getting them solved. I have sent them to a couple of people who I know have solved or been in, interested in this sort of thing before. One of them is a professor and uh, teaches essentially that that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe they'll be interested in, in in having a go at solving the cipher and maybe, you know, we can solve it. If not, I which, you know, more than likely we won't be able to. <laughs> um, but if maybe if you can uh, have a look, I will make the ciphers available on my uh, Instagram. And if you're a Patreon member, I'll also upload the full scans to Patreon. Um, so you can check them out if, if you're interested um, in having a look or sending them to someone that might be interested. But otherwise, that's the end of that story. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next episode is uh, obviously going to be coming in time for Halloween. So it's suitably Halloween-y. I'm very excited about it. I've been uh, collecting sources since before this season started. Um, so I'm very excited to actually start working on, on the actual story. It should be a, a good one. If you would like to get in contact, either you know to talk about this episode or anything else, or if you would like to... Uh, send me your submission for the Christmas campfire as I mentioned you can do so um, all of the links are in the show notes but the email is contact at darkhistories.com you can also uh, get in touch via um, uh, any sort of social medias which as I mentioned all the links to that is in the show notes there's also a link to the website darkhistories.com that has links to just about everything the the, the website is kind of the hub uh, where you'll be able to find links to all the ways that you can support the podcast or contact me or or whatever you want to do including all the you know episodes and links to the books and merch and all that kind of stuff so yeah thanks very much for listening until next time take care sleep tight (laughs) 